Hey everyone, this is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Every week, I'm going to talk to thinkers and doers who are working to make every meal better. Today, I'm talking to New Orleans legend and restaurateur, Dickie Brennan. Enjoy the show. You've got something to drink? Water, do you want anything? The, uh, I might get some water or something. Okay, so hi everyone. It's uh, Danny Nirenberg. This is the inaugural launch of our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Um, and I am so pleased and excited to be here with somebody who is a legend in New Orleans, uh, the great Dickie Brennan. You really are. Don't shake your head. Um, <laughs> that <laughs> any- is so embarrassing. <laughs> no, and there's more. Um, anyone who has visited New Orleans knows about the Brennan family. You're really the first family of food here. Uh, and you are the owner of Dickie Brennan and Company Restaurant Group. Um, we're sitting at the amazing Palace Cafe, just a few blocks from where I lived, and I am so, you know, excited to be here and look out at Canal Street and see streetcars go by. Um, and it's it's close to other restaurants that you own, several. Uh, and you know, again, this is our first podcast. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for being our our test, our guinea pig on this. I promise it'll be easy and fun. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, if you want to say a few words about where we are and why it's important to you. I'm so nervous now. Don't be nervous. Oh it's my be goodness! Great. This is a, what just, an intro. Uh, well, we're sitting uh, in this. Wonderful historic building on Canal Street. Uh, originally, it was the for about a hundred years. It was a music store, Warlines for Music. Great New Orleans family. A uh, lot of pioneering in the music world. Uh, um, so we are fortunate. Back in '91, uh, when they wanted to move the store out to the suburbs, uh, we had the opportunity to develop the property into its next chapter which has been a restaurant for the last 26 27 years and um and that's when we gave birth to palace cafe so it's kind of like my baby uh at the time i was going between houston texas and new orleans we have a brennan's restaurant in houston and my cousin and i were co-managing that restaurant back in the 80s and looking around to do the next thing for the family and that's when we kind of came across this opportunity to do a restaurant on canal street so yeah it's a cool spot it's it's a a, beautiful building great history you know so um and we've had a great run so it's it's very proud of palace that's great so i you know i know there's a lot of specialty dishes here but i want to ask you you know maybe maybe it's a memory from here but what's your favorite food memory do you have one thing in particular either it's from growing up or something you all concocted here well if i'm thinking here at palace a couple things come to mind uh when we were going to open the restaurant Thank you so much. My cousin, uh, T. Martin, my sister, Lauren, Brandon Brower, myself, and not too long afterward, my youngest cousin, Brad Bridgman, joined us. But we were young. We were the next generation. We were definitely cocky. Mm-hmm. So when we started talking about what our dessert menu would be and look like, we decided if it isn't chocolate, it's not a dessert. <laughs> so we uh, put all this energy into creating a chocolate dessert menu. And uh, being in New Orleans, you have to have bread pudding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we did this white chocolate bread pudding when we we're developing all the dishes. And we did all that out of Commanders. So, uh, so we did it and everybody, we tasted it and we're like, all right, done, put it on the side. So when we were doing the opening... You know, we're finishing construction here and we're opening up the restaurant. We did some trial runs. And the second night that people were coming in, predominantly, if they were saying something that they'd heard about the first night, they're all saying, I understand I need to try this white chocolate dessert. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, well, for whatever reasons, white chocolate bread pudding just was a great marriage. Uh, we used this incredible, uh, great Swiss uh, white chocolate um, Edelweiss. I mean, it's a high-quality white chocolate, which, although it's become our signature dessert, it's also the most expensive bread pudding in New Orleans. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But 
Worth it, though. We were doing a 10th anniversary cookbook, and this one of our wonderful purveyors, um, who sells us the white chocolate, had added up and had figured out that we had gone through 32 tons of white chocolate <laughs> in 10 years with one dessert. It's amazing. So I've got to say, white chocolate bread pudding has been better, better good to us. <laughs> um, so as we're sitting here, your amazing staff, thank you, Chef, You're is welcome. bringing out great treats. We have rosé. It's like my dream interview situation. Thank you again. Gus, thank you. So that's uh, Gus Martin. Gus and I have been together. Uh, my family bought Commander's Palace in the 70s, no, late 60s. Um, and the first time I could cook, I might have been 12, 13 years old, so it was like 73. And when I went to go work with Paul Prudhomme in the kitchen, the other young guy in the kitchen was Gus Martin. His mother was, um, when we bought Commander's, there were three women that were captains in this area of the restaurant called the Grill Room, and they were very unique because you didn't have women captains right, back then. Right. And Viva Plaisance was Gus's mother, who, very fortunate for us, came with commanders. And so Gus was her son, and we're both, you know, the 13-year-old. It's like, get off the couch, go do something. It was the summertime. Right. So literally, Gus and I started cooking together as we were teenagers at Commanders with Paul Prudhomme. And... We've been together ever since. He's my, I hate to say a corporate chef. You know, we have four four restaurants. They're all within walking distance. Right. You know, and he oversees and supports our four head chefs. Uh, and, uh, but, in fact, his son, Gustar, is one of, I'm who did Gustar, our lunch. Yeah. Not too long ago. Cool chef. I liked him a Great lot. Great young man. So, we're like brothers. So. That's fantastic. So I'm not sure what he sent on us here. Um, before we go any further, I'd like to give you a, a cheers. Well, Thanks again for I doing like this. I like that. Okay. <laughs> um, so you, you've alluded to the really sort of long and rich history of your family here. What, what's it like to be part of this family that's so well known and so important to the food culture of New Orleans? Yeah, I think on one hand, I... I you know, when you think of being in the right place at the right time, I think I'm one of the luckiest guys on this earth. You know, to live in New Orleans, be in the restaurant business, I think is a huge advantage and is a gift. But, you know, with my family's crazy background and things <laughs> that happened and to be a teenager, mm -hmm. you know, next to two blocks from Commander's Palace when, you know, it was going to its next chapter in life i mean when we bought it it was a you know 90 year old restaurant pretty had um had become a little run down let's just say that but uh but at the same time the brennan family the flagship was brennan's restaurant and we were going through a family split and so my dad sister ella adelaide Dottie, and uncle john moved into commanders right. and had to really start over in the middle of their careers yeah so as a teenager you know i got to watch them go into this wonderful magnificent place that just needed some love and attention but they had had a lot of success at brennan's on royal street and they didn't want to reproduce you know like that's brennan's we're sure. not going to copy brennan's and so it made them get out of the box and timing wise so much of the food industry had become uh, there were advancements, you know, in technology and in farming and with shipping uh, worldwide. You know, you're just getting all these products from California, tomatoes year-round. I mean, it just we'd gone through an evolution uh, in the 60s and 70s. And they recognized that maybe this isn't, you know, there's some things that are great, but there's some things that, you know, we don't really like where we're going. And so, at that time, they a couple of things they decided to do. They, they, they wanted to evolve the cooking, Creole cooking. Uh, they wanted to work with farmers. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted local products, you know. Dad walked in the commanders one day with, uh, when Paul was our chef, and he's like, Paul, every menu in New Orleans has trout almondine. I've never seen an almond tree, but I'm <laughs> tripping over pecans. Why can't we do trout pecan? Right. You know, and it became a signature dish of commanders, but those that was the thought process let's make it local let's make it regional and this is the 70s right you know before it was in and vogue our, to do this and yeah. our chef was a guy from the country in louisiana that 
grew up on farms and knew the fishermen and the trappers. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, we, uh, I don't know, their wisdom, their timing. And for me as a teenager, you know, to be a part of them doing this, you know, and the fact that they had to start over, but the energy they had was unbelievable because they had done it. It wasn't their first rodeo. And right. so they had an opportunity to have a clean slate with all the knowledge and wisdom and just create the best. I mean, they always strive for doing what was the best, you know, and uh, they always were educating themselves. You know, they traveled around the world to see what was going on worldwide. Sure. Had so many friends, connections, and people would come visit us. So it was just always this energy, dynamic people, uh, you know, that you were connected with. Right, and, uh, right. So, and you feel like this is something that you took on when you, you know, grew up and became more involved and that your kids are taking on as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And, you know, so, I mean, I was just in an incredible place at the right time. And, and you know, and that continued through my teenage years and in through college, uh, came back, came into the family business. And, you know, my dad was very... He said, look, if you're going to be in the family business, I want you to go. I want you to get an education, and I want you to go work for other people. And i really like for you to get out of the United States. Um, so in college, I think the first first summer, I went to Mexico City to work. And it was with this wonderful man who's my dad's dear friend, Nick Noyes, an American who had bought Delmonico's restaurant. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was just an incredible restaurateur. Um he also had uh, created a concept there in the city called the Mauna Loa. And I'll never forget talking to Jeff Berry not too long ago, you know, who had moved here and is kind of the godfather of the American cocktails, but a real guru of tiki concepts. Mm-hmm. And when I told him I had worked in Mexico City, he said, did you ever hear of the Mauna Loa? I said, I actually worked there for two weeks. And he was just playing. He says, that was like one of the cutting edge. So here again, I mean, dad wanted me to go to Mexico City for two reasons. One, Nick Noyes was a great restaurateur. It was an incredible restaurant downtown Mexico City. I mean, when you say a power lunch, you know, it was crazy. But the other thing is dad wanted me to see what poverty was. He said, sure. he says, you don't know poverty. You know, wait till you see the difference in this car. So it was great exposure, great education. And that continued on through high school. I mean, through college, graduated, worked in New York City. Um, I had a great opportunity there. It was Larry Forgium. He had just left River Cafe. I was heading to go work in Europe, and someone called the family and said, I understand Dickie's leaving, but Larry's leaving. He's going to go open a restaurant called American Place. Uh, might be a great opportunity for him to work with Larry and see the restaurant open. So I, I had that opportunity. I went up there, um, worked with Larry. Uh, what I loved is his mentor would come check us out. His mentor was Jim's Beard. <laughs> So we would serve him, Amazing. and James Beard would yeah. tell us very polite how much he liked everything and <laughs> maybe didn't like something else. Uh, I've got a picture of my office of the four or five of us that were in that kitchen every night with Julia Child. Oh you know, and I mean, we just had, I mean, here was this young American chef really trying to do it in New York, what we had been doing with a Paul Prudhomme, you know, several years prior. But to go work with him in New York City and live in that city and the exposure there and with this great young American chef. So, there again, I mean, it's this education, it's the exposure that you receive. And I know what I'm going to get to is my kids, you know, they're the second generation of that. So, I mean, they've had great opportunity to get educated. Uh, I never went to a culinary school. So, I mean, you know, what I suggested and they certainly took me up on was to go to culinary school so both of my children have gone to CIA um, my sister's son Jordy went to Johnson and Wales mm-hmm. so the three of them uh, all of you know have classic educations and and then they've gone off they've gone to have their externships uh, my daughter's working at Tartine Bakery in San Francisco. She Amazing. wants to be a baker, you know, and she wanted to bre- bake bread. So the first year she was with them, she was at the bakery doing croissants and pastries. That was not her goal. And about a year later, they had an opening on the bread team. And 
she got that position and she's been there for a little bit over a year just got moved into management i mean she's living her dream right and right. it was her goal was to work in this one bakery and she had the opportunity to do it yeah uh so you know my son richard graduated uh did a little bit of work at french laundry and then headed over to uh, to work for a butcher in tuscany you know dario centini i mean this wonderful seventh generation crazy man <laughs> but so passionate about what he does sure and richard went for a two-month externship and stayed for six months so so you know i could go on on about the two kids the, the uh, and my nephew jordy uh, they just i'm so proud of them sure and i know how my dad felt when my generation came into the business right but that we came in with things to offer mm -hmm. and it's such a relief for me to know that boy they're capable i don't have to tell them what to do i can get on the sidelines you know i can support them it's their turn and, mm -hmm. and you know let them take it to the next level right and, and what i think is impressive about that is not only were, was your family really on the cutting edge of these things that are all, you know, sort of fashionable now, like local and sourcing things directly from farmers, but that you're, you're continuing the traditions, but adding, you know, new flavors to them and, and you know, new techniques and, and embracing technologies and embracing, you know, your, your kids going out and doing different things. Not, not every parent would be as supportive. They'd want them to stay here and, and right. be part of the restaurants here. But I, I think it's so important that they're learning these different skill sets and oh you know it was a gift for me and I certainly want to pass that to my kids and we have we've done that process and they're on the road and I have all the confidence in the world that that they'll have success going forward uh, my dad always said don't change the sake of change but you need to always evolve mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know there's a big important it's there's a big difference there I mean if we wanted to do something that was trendy that was on the cover of a magazine and every three months want to switch and be trendy or something new you know that's i think that's craziness uh we're in a city we have rich traditions we have classic restaurants hundred year old restaurants so i mean classic tradition is important but at the same time we need to evolve what we're doing right and so you know we've figured out how to do that and not be trendy or something that doesn't last long i mean our goal is for these restaurants to you know become an institute Absolutely. like we have so many in new orleans and they're 100 year old and they're operated fourth and fifth generation right. so i mean you know that's our goal is for these to continue on and if it's family members run them that's you know that's part of the success so. right and from my understanding in our, our past you know time together it's not just about the chefs and the restaurant workers that you want to keep going. You want to keep local farmers in this region going and, and work with them closely. Um, you told me this story about Creole tomatoes and, and, you know, how that's, you know, kind of a misnomer now to get a real Creole tomato. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I grew up, my mother was from down the river in St. Bernard Parish and some of the greatest summer vine ripe tomatoes came out of St. Bernard Parish um, you know and these are the soils right off the Mississippi River so it wasn't an heirloom tomato that I grew up eating but it was these tomatoes that existed back in the 40s 50s 60s and these varieties were just tremendous um, they weren't manipulated like what we have today and so I grew up knowing that flavor and all of a sudden you know I'm waiting for the tomato the local Creole summer tomato crop to show up at the back door and you know they just don't have the flavor they if you pick one up and smell it there's no aroma um, they just look different and you know so I approached some farmers this has got over 10 years ago it's pre-Katrina I was like what's up you know and they said well this one guy said my customers don't like the ugly ones you know I'm doing pretty well I said you gotta be kidding me and right after that, one of the Louisiana Agricultural Extension guys said, Dickie, the new varieties yield 40% more on the vine and they're disease resistant. They're not going to stop selling. I mean, they're not going to stop growing. How these. Do they, they taste? Work. <laughs> and I said, but they taste like crap. They have no flavor. And so he's like, well, that's what happens when you manipulate. And so 
at that point, I really try. I mean, I was trying to encourage old farmers. I mean, farmers bring grow me the old variety. I'll sure. pay more for them. Right. Whatever. Let's, you know. And then I had some progress going. And then Katrina hit, and it just kind of took us out. And I still am having the hardest time uh, trying to get someone to grow the old varieties. Sure. But I'm encouraged. You know, they just did a wonderful uh, documentary on John Kirkendall. So, and you know, and he's collected all the seeds for the peas, and 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 he, his secret is not a big. You just go try to find old farmers, and eventually going to find an old farmer that has seeds. Right, absolutely. So, I've got everybody I know. I tell everybody, go find an old farmer. If you see somebody with some tomatoes growing in front of their house, just stop by. Say, you know, what are these? You know, so we're on a mission. We're going to hopefully um, get that going because it's. Uh, you know we've got to preserve it's uh there was a guy that came and visited when we opened up the uh southern food and beverage museum mm -hmm. his name was jacques puissant i think jacques puissant and they created a ministry for him in france and it's the institute they goot taste mm. because he was concerned and this is a man that came to visit and this is after katrina as a guest and his whole mission was kids aren't eating tomatoes you know, they're eating these commercially grown tomatoes right. and they don't know the taste. And all it takes is two generations and it's gone forever because they don't know the taste. Mm -hmm. And he said, same thing with chicken. So I think it's they, they do chicken and tomatoes where they let kids at a middle age, school age mm -hmm. taste a difference mm -hmm. between a vine ripe, you know, so that they know the flavors and the taste. So it was ironic that here I'm. On, just on this mission and here's this guy has a ministry in France Love it. to save you know great flavors so uh, so I don't know I'm real committed to that because it's just it's just a natural thing for me I you know I mean when you're a cook it doesn't get any better than what comes in the back door absolutely and what I certainly know and have understood is You've got to get out there because what's going to come in the back door is not the best right. that we can do. You have to go encourage people, you know, let's do it the right way. Let's do it better. Let's handle the seafood you're catching in a proper way. You know, that's so, you know, so it amazes me how much, um, how much time I put into trying to connect with the people who are growing and catching. Right, and I don't think, you know, most clients at your restaurants understand how much time that takes. And, no, I don't think you know, anybody has a clue. And, and then and then my partners, you know, my sister, and they're like, where are you going? <laughs> so I spend a lot of time, you know, but I enjoy it. I mean, it's, it sure. gets me outdoors. It's a quest. And you to learn really so find much. Flavor. Yeah. I took uh, my son Richard and my nephew Jordy to go spend a day in Des Alamon, Louisiana. It's, you know, where... The finest wild catfish come from mm. and this wonderful guy joey fonseca if you're going over the little us 90 bridge i mean right to the right that little house that's him oh really and joey's been there for generations his two sons are you know are now trapping and hunting and far uh, catching fish fishing uh and we spent a whole day with him and it was great you know to see how you catch and all that you know spend, but then we went in the house with he and his wife and I can't tell you, I mean, what they shared with us, her cooking techniques, you know, how her grandmother did something, you know, all these different things. Uh, I, we, I'd never get that out of a book. I'd right. never know that just being in my four walls. I mean, that was us connecting and wanting to spend time together. So it's, you know, you really do have to invest. You have to have a commitment, and it is a time investment. Right, and that experience is so important. You can't get that anywhere else, as you said. I, I mean, it makes me want to wake up and go to work and continue to evolve what I do. Right, you absolutely. You know, it certainly prevents it from being a, you know, going through the motions. Right, no one wants to do it's that. Like, yeah. I know we can do better. Absolutely. So uh, I'll let you slip your wine, but um, <laughs> you, you, you talked a little bit about Katrina, and I don't think we can, you know, have any discussion about Louisiana and food without talking about the impacts of Katrina. I think that we're still seeing in, in this city and in the whole region today. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, 
that day, that week, the, the months after, the years after, and how that really affected not just your business, but really the culture uh, of food and, and life here. Sure. Uh, you know, it's a wooden event uh, that we all experienced, and everybody's different experiences. You know, we went through our normal rituals where we battened down the hatch. I mean, one thing about a hurricane is you know it's coming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we do a lot. Uh, one of the last things my partner and I do is we, we walk up and down Canal Street and if there's a vending machine that, you know, has a newspaper or something, I mean, we'll get everything off the street. We'll put it in the big garage next door at the Marriott. We go up on the roofs and we see if there's anything on someone's roof. Because, I mean, that's the stuff that creates the dance. So, I mean, we really want to be prepared. And we spend a lot of time with the team, you know, protecting ourselves. Then we get everybody out of town that wants to get out of town. Whoever wants to stay in a hotel, we put them in the hotel. And um, so we had gone over to my house to board it up last. We'd take care of everything else. And, you know, it was getting close. We knew it was coming. And my ex-wife and two kids were in the car getting ready to go to baton rouge and we really had everything boarded up and they're like come with us come with us come with us and we're like no nah, you know we always stay here mm -hmm. and so I don't know, for whatever reason steve and i the last day we're like well what the hell we'll we'll just drive up and we'll drive back in the morning sure you know we've done everything we can it's all battened down everybody's his family gone to lafayette to stay with us so we did that which is crazy we never do that and we watched it on TV. We sat there, and the next thing you know, we're like going, well, we're not going back to New Orleans tomorrow. And so we did, and we went back right after. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and at that, within no time at all, we just communicated with our whole team, you know, all of our managers, everybody, look, let's get you to a, wherever you're going to go outside the city and get the kids in school because mm -hmm. they're not going to go to school in New Orleans. Right. And so, you know, we got everybody settled. Um, and then we just jumped in and started doing the recovery work. So, I mean, we we're here trying to feed people, um, trying to get the restaurants. You know, we had some issues. Um, and, you know, we we're doing recovery food, but we really wanted to open a restaurant. That was our goal. Mm -hmm. And But with the health department, they wouldn't give us a permit to open. And it was uh, finally the fifth weekend. That Friday is when they gave us a permit, and so we opened the restaurant, um, which was kind of incredible. Um, not many places were open, right. but we were the first weekend you could open. We opened up, and people like Joey Fonseca brought us wild catfish. I mean, I Love had er most of the restaurants opened up doing burgers and chicken. Sure. I, we one of the smartest things we did was we ran a payroll mm -hmm. to pay all of our employees, knowing they were going to be gone, they needed money. Mm -hmm. So. The word gets around. If we didn't know where they were, they knew where to find us. Right. And the other thing is we did an accounts payable. We were paying all our purveyors. Same thing. If we didn't know what, they knew how to call us because mm -hmm. they wanted to get a check. So I was connected with everybody. And so when we were talking with someone like a Joe, I'm like going, I'm going to open as soon as I can. He's like, well, I've got one boat. I'll, I'll bring you whatever you need. And I'm like, all right, great. Just would, as soon as they let us know. So, I mean, literally, we opened up with wonderful products, fresh products, and um, and the neat thing was is we had a, a a meeting for all of our team, and we did it in Gonzales, which is kind of between New Orleans and Baton Rouge, because we knew people weren't going to come to New Orleans. And most people were spread it around Baton Rouge area. So people who you know, big groups showed up there, and then a lot of people called in. But we just kind of told them what we knew and what, or what our plan was and if they wanted to be a part of it or not, you mm -hmm. know. And mm -hmm. if they wanted to stay in the city and they hadn't found a job, you know, that we'd help. We'd right. call our friends. and So it was one of those meetings. And i never forget a lot of the younger generation that was there was a lot of them said, I just can't go back. I don't want to go back. Right. I'm just Too not painful. ready for that. Yeah. And, and I was like, fine. I mean, I understood that. So we go to open the restaurant, and I had like a dream team because it was four general managers, four chefs, sous chef. I mean, all the management team pretty much like, if you're going to open, I'm there. Right. So I had this, all these wonderful, capable people and a handful of, you know, frontline employees. And so we opened up the restaurant, 
and um, within a short period of time, all of a sudden I'd see someone coming into work, and I'm like, I thought you weren't coming back. And so what was happening is when we first learned what texting was, nobody <laughs> texts prior to that. Right. It was well, we had this one guy on the wait staff, and he had a bunch of people plugged in that he would text. Mm -hmm. And so he's texting saying, you can't believe how cool it is to be working at Bourbon House right now. Right. Because people are so grateful that we'd open and they would walk in, they'd hug the staff. They're like, oh my God, my days, you know, right. just all this trying to go uphill. It's so nice to be able to come in and have a meal. And, you know, so people were incredibly grateful. They were very kind and mm -hmm. nice. And it was just a great group of people. So, and they were taking care of the staff. So the word was getting out that, man, this is a good gig. You know, they were having a great experience. That really started bringing our staff back to yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. And um, so it's funny, you know, it's communications, things like text, all these things that never would have been there if you hadn't had this event. But we had an incredible silver line. A lot of the media would come there every night, uh, you know, because once the sun went down, I mean, we, it was just, there wasn't electricity in most parts right. of the city. So everybody kind of bugged in. But... Bourbon House became the uh, Convention Visit Bureau, took one of our dining rooms upstairs and kind of became the media center. So nice. people would come and eat, hang at the bar. And there was this one guy, he was with, he was a National Geographic guy, but he was, wasn't with them. But he would come in and we'd all wait for him because when he went out, it was with the three-star general on the helicopter. <laughs> I mean, he just had, so I mean, he would tell us, two days later, we'd get it in the news, you know? I mean, he just was way ahead of Amazing. most of the yeah. pack so i mean it was you know that was the exciting fun part of by jumping in and being involved um we got to experience a lot of incredibly uh wonderful things you know and at the same time you still had to deal every day with someone who had lost a family member who had lost their entire you know right you know your wedding pictures are gone you're right they, you know th those things you can't things you can't replace that was tough you know we had to deal with that but it also, you know, I think for New Orleanians, you, you came to realize what was important in life. And I think we get too much into this, the lifestyles of modern times and sure. you take so much for granted. Well, and you realize what is important and, and you realize the, the healing power of, of good business practices, of good food, of having a place where people can come together. I mean, though, you can't put a price on any of those things, you know, and, and they mean a lot more than possessions at the end of the day. It's uh, absolutely, there's this a silver lining, you know, so I mean, I don't ever want to do it again. No. <laughs> I'm glad that we kind of jumped in the way we did. And, you know, I think it's, I think we received a lot of gifts by being active and proactive. So, yeah, no, and I, I think it's extraordinary what, what your whole family was able to do. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, sort of the seafood industry here. And, you know, sometimes New Orleans gets a bad rap for seafood, sometimes it's applauded. Can you talk a little bit about what your restaurants try to do to sort of, you know, lift up the seafood here as, as not only part of the culture, but what we can do to preserve it? Um, you know, one, it's, on one hand, it's, Probably the Mouth Mississippi River is probably one of the most fertile fish grounds in the world. So, I mean, we have the most incredible resource, whether it's, you know, in the marsh or it's inlands in the bayous and um, or offshore. I mean, Jesus, mm -hmm. our Gulf shrimp, you know, the, the fish, our sawshell crabs, crabs, crawfish inland, you know, wild catfish. I mean, my God, we have one of the finest resources. I think our biggest challenge is people, you know. And it's like anything in life. You know, there's some great commercial fishermen, there's some bad commercial mm -hmm. fishermen. I have uh, friends who are very good recreational fishermen and some that abuse the hell out of it. You know, so, I mean, you can't blame commercial or recreational. Um, we all need to be responsible. Um, I, at this stage, I'm a proponent of scientists managing a resource for us. Uh, I'm also a proponent of identifying what are the secondary 
you know, good and bad effects. I mean, if farming up the Midland, you know, what's coming down the river is creating algae blooms and stuff like that. We need to look at that. That's, you know, that's not protecting, maintaining a healthy resource. So, you know, I think everybody should be responsible. You know, I don't think, I, and I, but I think we should make it very feasible if somebody wants to be a fisherman to go fish mm-hmm. you know sometimes it we make it impossible for somebody to make a living because we because of regulations whatever so i'm big into self-regulation you know industries being res- responsible themselves instead Absolutely. of a bunch of people voting on something and then we have to enact it when it's just nobody understands that the ripple effect is going to be what it is um you know so i try to be active at, at any level I can because I think our biggest challenge is people you know it's a great resource people are either going to manage it properly or abuse it so it's uh, it's frustrating um, you know but I think there's so much opportunity for us to, to do it better right and restaurants have so much power to encourage fishers to do to do the right thing to do better management to work with scientists you know, I, I think there's a lot, like you said, a lot of opportunity there. I mean, there isn't a time that I've been with a commercial fisher or whatever, and I'm sitting there, you know, I've got this wonderful guy, and he does shrimp. And, you know, if I have something going on, I'm like, bring me whatever special. And so he brought something in recently, and I need to drill down on it, but it was something where a sh- certain shrimp was harvested at a certain time of night, and it takes on a different appearance. Hmm. I mean, it's, and it doesn't change you know once it's been harvested and mm-hmm. i was like what are those and he had a name for them and you know and this i was like lance you know i know lance. Being, <laughs> quit being a commodity guy right right you know this is where when i look at the east and the west coast fisheries you have people that have different educations different exposures and a lot of what they're doing is boutique fishing mm-hmm. and they're going to go get a great quality swordfish responsibly and bring it to a chef and you know, they can get a great price for that. People are willing, you know, to pay for something that's special. So I'm like, Lance, instead of all this shrimp being just going into one basket and you're getting $2 a pound for right. shrimp, you know, pull me these, you know. Give me the soft shell shrimp, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, separate it all. I'm going to pay you a different price for that because I want my guests to experience it and I can make it a specialty. So, you know we just are so commodity minded in louisiana and we don't process anything you know i mean our crabs are getting hit so hard right now because you know chesapeake bay i mean they come down they buy everything we have right you know they have processing facilities up there to process they need crabs the crabs aren't in the chesapeake bay right now i mean Mm -hmm. they they need to bring that back absolutely you know crabs aren't living on the bottom there so um but you know ideally i'd like for us to have a better way to process and for it to become more of a premium product for people here yeah instead of them just selling everything at the dock for a low price and other people you know making it a value-added product sure sure so uh you know so i think we need to educate that next generation of fishermen in louisiana right if you go to a market in europe anything that's on the boat is sitting there in the market i mean it could be this little section with bait fish and right i mean you know we throw everything away because we just want to eat this this and this absolutely and i and I, I know you don't like regulations you know in theory but i think you know there's an opportunity for louisiana and our ag department and and the research institutions at the universities here to really take a lead on this why aren't they um and you know i wish it was the scientists and our universities um the power is the governor and the elected officials and so you know it goes way back over 30 years ago where you know they started uh and it was different lobbying groups and they turned redfish into a sport fish um that wasn't science based that was you know people who were recreational fishermen so I think we do a lot better, and I push for it to be regulated. And I'm not opposed to regulation. I just think that industry should be a part of the regulation. You know, you have to carry it out. Mm-hmm. Help me do it to where I can do it in a way that is, you know, you we're all going to be successful. In the process, and, yeah. Um, but um, 
No, I very much wish it was, you know, I wish our universities had more curriculums and brought in some of the leading individuals that knew about, you know, farming, uh, agriculture, you know, our coastal erosion. My goodness, I mean, we should be, have the, the best professors in the world in Louisiana with the wonderful resources and things we have to, to study and to, you know, help be the food, to, the think tank to, you know, to make it better down mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. I'm a big, I mean, education, bottom line is what I'm, you know, is where I am. And it's, we should teach it. We should look to them. And I think it, you know, just our fishermen, I'd love to take just a, 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 a you know, the next generation young fishermen and take them to Europe and just let them see how someone fishes in the mm-hmm, Mediterranean mm-hmm. and then how someone sells it. Right, right. Just open their eyes. Yeah. You know, and let them become more entrepreneurs, business people, and, uh, you know, and evolve their life. Absolutely. So I, I think, you know, you've talked throughout this conversation about the importance of education. And, and I know you're opening Noki, the New Orleans Culinary and Hospitality Institute. Can you talk about your vision for, for this institute and, and you know, bringing, you know, a diverse group of students in and, and what you want to teach them? Well, the neat thing is if you can do higher education in your own backyard, it's a lot easier and it's a lot more uh, probable that a young kid that has no opportunity is going to be able to fall into that. So one of our biggest goals is for any kid in this city that has the right heart and the right attitude, no matter what your background or means are, is to be able to get this world-class education. Um, so, you know, currently for 80 years we've had a program at Delgado, but it's kind of antiquated. Uh, it's a two-year program. You know, and this is where education has to evolve. Yeah. It's a two-year program for a kid to get skills to work in a restaurant. And the graduation rate's about 4 or 5%. And reason being is they put them into a program for two years where they're going to have to take English and math that they took in high school mm-hmm. so that they can get a degree. Mm-hmm. Because they're trying to make it a college degree. But this individual wants to get work skilled to work in the restaurant, not to sit in a classroom mm-hmm. taking English. You know, if they want to go back to college, get a degree, they'll go back to college. They're like, I, I don't want a degree. Right, I and just not get burdened skilled. with student loans, too. I mean, so yeah. the two-year program, it's, so our program is 20 weeks. You know, it's all done in the lab. It's designed to give you the skills, probably more skills than you'd get. CIA developed it for us. I mean, people we're partnered with and consultants are the best in the business. Um, you know, we want to get the get an individual and I, I don't want to say kids because a lot of people switch careers and it's mm-hmm. amazing how many people want to cook because they're just tired of doing something that they don't enjoy mm-hmm. so you know to get an individual in in a kitchen and then to be able to come back and what we want to do is create certificate courses and they're real specific if you want to butcher you're going to go into a great lab with a great teacher and all you're going to do is butcher you know it could be charcuterie um, I want to see us with a great cheese maker you know, Louisiana should be making great cheeses. Agreed. It's not going to happen if we don't teach it. Right. So, um, you know, so chocolatiers. I mean, you know, we really um, want to have these certificate courses. We want to do ongoing education uh, for people in the industry to come do a specific course for a week. You know, it could be a summer month. Um, so a lot of ongoing education with people in the profession. Then enthusiasts. I mean... For several reasons. I mean, people love to cook, uh, and it can help our be. It can help us be sustainable. I mean, mm-hmm. City of New Orleans. We have 10 million visitors, so to have these enthusiast courses for people to come, you know, get a great experience, learn about Louisiana cooking. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun, fun part of uh, this institute. Um, you know, but the other thing we want to do is connect with the institutes that are in town. Tulane has taken entire floor. And their business school is is going to is going to start focusing on uh, hospitality entrepreneurship, you know, to help people that want to do a business in the hospitality industry and, and really focus on. It. I mean, our industry is the biggest industry in America. We employ more people than anybody else. Actually, the government passed us up; they're the biggest employer. But 
most people's first jobs are in the hospitality was, industry. Yeah. And, you know, and this is what surprised people. We're the most sustainable industry there is. And, and try to explain that. I mean, it's such a big industry. If you start off, I mean, who's the gentleman that owns and founded Four Seasons Hotel? I mean, his first job was washing dishes. I mean, that, he advanced pretty good. Mm-hmm. But I have individuals that, you know, they're young. They went from waiting tables to become a diner manager, you know, system managers, done it for years. Next thing they get married, they have kids. They kind of don't want to do the night and weekend thing. Well, next thing you know, they're working for my purveyor that sells me seafood every day, you know, and they become part of that part of the, the industry, you know, working with the purveyor and, and having nights and weekends off. And the only reason they got that job is because they were working in the restaurant, they were connected with the company, that, you know, so we're very sustainable that you're not stuck on mm-hmm. one path. Mm-hmm. You can take many paths and there's a lot of room to go up. You know, I sat there with one of our dish crews not too long ago. It's a bunch of young kids. And I told I said, you know, I was trying to encourage them to dream big, you know. And, and I said, if you come into work and you're just going to do what they tell you to do, you're here. Right. If you show up and you do everything they tell, tell you to do and you go to whoever you supervise, you say, all right, I did all that. What else can I do? All right. That supervisor is going to go, I'm going to put you on my wing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, okay, tomorrow I want you to do this. In, in a month from now, like, I want you to do the schedule. Or right. here, come here, I'm going to show you how to use this. Next thing you know, you're the crew chief. Right. You know, so what we have to do is encourage individuals to, to be motivated and, well, and mentor that it's your destiny. Sure, it's cultivating can, leadership for sure. My mother always said, you, get, you sleep eight hours. Work eight hours. What you do with those other eight hours? I mean, it's basic stuff like that. Right. You know, right. and I'm a big believer. If you have work those eight hours, if you're just doing the motions, what do you expect? Right. You need but to make them you, good. Yeah. If you become a part of the team and the system and want to help and want to make it better. I mean, I tell people all it's in our orientation. If you work in a certain job, you become the expert. And if you've got a thought, you know. Share it. Yeah. I mean, some of the best thing systems we have in our family of restaurants is from an individual that said, why don't we try doing runners instead of every waiter going in the kitchen to pick up food? You yeah. know, so it's, you know, and so I think the more we tell those stories in orientation and as we meet with the teams and weekly meetings, whatever, you know, it helps a young person like all of a sudden has some motivation. To, I'm going to do more than just the basics. Sure. You know, I want to live the dream. I want to move sure. on. So, so, I don't know. That's a way off of talking no. about Noki, but it's, again, it's, it's you know, education. It's certainly part of it. I mean, you're training leaders. I mean, I, I'm interested, like, where do you see it five years from now, ten years from now? What do you want this institute to really be in the South? Or So, certainly, um, you know, I want us to have expertise in giving people the skills to do the frontline jobs, cooking waiting tables, bartendering, um, you know, certainly the wine psalms, and, you know, we want to have all those things in place. Um, But what I hope is that it can become an institute, and when I say to pair up with the other universities in town, UNO, Dillard, Tulane, Loyola, uh, it's about going to find a teacher. And for us, this is Noki's industry driven. Mm -hmm. So, like, right now, if we need, we do our accounting in-house for our restaurants. If I need a new accountant and we're hiring a young person, that person's coming in. It's two years of training them how we do inventory and everything. So, here's our thought with Noki is, let's say UNO has an accounting program. If in the junior and senior year, they go hire one teacher, and let's just say his teacher's like a Stephen Ambrose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, historian. Look what he's done for New Orleans. Right, right. Okay, so we find a Stephen Ambrose that understands restaurant, hotel, hospitality, accounting. Mm-hmm. And so the junior and senior year of this kid is a professor that's UNO at Noki. And so they're going to, when they graduate 
and they come to a restaurant company, I want to walk in the door saying, why are you still using this software? You know, mm-hmm. we were using this. My professor was coming up with the, the, the next greatest, you know, he's the one that pioneered. She did this. Right. You know, so take our industry and do higher education instead of not. Right. You know, I mean, I think law firms, if if in the morning a law firm gets a call and it's a labor issue or something, chances are it's some manager out of a restaurant saying, I got a labor issue. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why don't we have a law professor at Tulane Loyola Southern? Sure that is a Stephen Ambrose of labor law, specifically with hospitality workers. Right, right. Just to, te- you know, so we don't do higher education in our industry when I think we can. I mean, architecture school, same thing. There's no architecture program that right. teaches food service design. And I don't think you do it basic. I think it's an architect wants to have a master's. It should be a master's level program in architecture. But Tulane has an architecture school. Yeah. They have a dean. Everything's in place. We need to just hire Stephen Ambrose and say, this is restaurant or hospitality design, Tulane at Noki. Right, You know, right, keep right. building this Noki brand. No, I, and I love that. And it, it makes it very holistic and very integrated. And you're breaking down all these silos. I mean, food encompasses everything. So Look, Tulane and Ellis Medical School and the bios, I mean, uh, Pennington Biocent up the river. Mm-hmm. My God, you can go crazy with what we could do with the food and medicine. Right. Absolutely. You know? But there again, we talked about it earlier, you know, we should be studying. There should be a professor talking about what's going in the river. Mm-hmm. How we're going to do the climate control with the seas rising and coastal erosion. I mean, we should have those Stephen Ambrose's at our universities yeah and if we connected it all to this one institute noki you know at a higher level of education that's the big dream that you know we leave is higher education in louisiana right instead of not absolutely so that's so. more than just a job it's actually a career for folks that they feel passionate about that like you they want to get up every day and do this job and feel good about it um i you know have been so excited to talk to you dickie you're like I, you're like my new favorite person. No, I'm just in well, love I'm with you and, well, and so happy I'm to have. Well, we connect because I, I want you to be doing all your stuff at Noki. I will, you know, I'd love that. That I'm would be there, amazing. It's almost ready. It's going to have all this wonderful space. and I can't wait so to see it. So if you can it, bring yeah. all the wonderful people you bring together, yeah. and we can do it in this wonderful city. That would be great. That would Wouldn't be great. Wouldn't that be a a dream so until we can do that i want to remind our listeners that you'll be speaking at our food tank summit on october 3rd in new york city um and that will focus on food loss and food waste if folks are interested in learning more they can check out the food tank website at foodtank.com and they can email me at danielle at foodtank.com to learn more about dickie brennan to email me suggestions to ask more questions we're really excited to have you again dickie thank you so much for your time you're wonderful thank you for uh this opportunity i've enjoyed it thanks for listening everyone it would mean the world to me if you could give us a five-star rating on itunes share this podcast with your friends and email me at danielle at foodtank.com with your suggestions see you next time for food talk